0: Hey, it's Adam. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting for a late morning tea session with Olivia Ephraim Pepper. She's an anarchist mystic, a thorn in the side of the patriarchy, a herald of utopia, and a younger, hotter, more feminist Alejandro Hodorowsky. She's a friend I met a few years ago through my partner Pamela, and we spoke of time, masculinity, Generation apocalypse and technologically induced apathy. We imbibed white two teas waffles, which is a ripe ware harvested and processed in twenty seventeen, which I thought was befitting for the time of day, and the gravity of our discussion. Here's Olivia.
1: <laughs> you know, I mean, podcasts. There are podcasts about cinema, which is also very funny to me because it reminds me of that quote, uh, which is, what is What is the quote? Uh, It ends with, like, dancing about architecture. Mm -hmm. Talking about, like, mixing mediums. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, just talking about cinema on the radio or on a podcast is a pretty funny experience. Yeah. But we did. We had this, like, end-of-the-year roundup of, like, all of our favorite films of the year. And I would get to talk about my top five. and. That was
0: always what were like? What do you remember from a particular year? Of your top five?
1: Well, I I do remember. Um, I don't know if I can remember all five, but I remember <laughs> when I felt like 1999 was a great year in films, and I remember us all talking about a bunch of different movies that came out that year. American Beauty came out that year. Right. We had a big conversation about that, and so did um, Magnolia. Right. And. Mm-hmm. Lots of conversation about that. There were a couple of other films that came out that year that were really impactful as well. I'm trying to remember.
0: It's funny to think 20 years ago is like, in a way, it's so vivid, but it's also such a blur.
1: Oh, yeah. That's weird, actually. I hadn't even thought that it was 20 years ago, but it totally is. Mm-hmm. 1999. I remember. Yeah, I remember Y2K also. I ha- we were on a radio show. I wish I had a recording of this because maybe it exists somewhere. It's probably just genius to listen to these like kind of goofy art kids in Eugene, Oregon talking about what's going to happen at Y2K. Because <laughs> regrettably, I admit that I had some uh I had some outsized expectations of sure. that particular event.
0: I feel like we all, I mean, don't we all in a way like not what's the what's the right way of i have like 14 responses to that but no i in the sense of like people want that's like because of the media this is just a big hypothesis at this point but like because of like what we grew up watching or playing or or consuming in terms of media when you think about something like Y2K, like it could be this or it could be that. And there's almost this like, almost this desire to want it to be like really crazy or like something, like something in a movie, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, I wanted it to be like the end of the world. I went up on a hillside with some friends and like waited to watch the power grid fail. Right. <laughs> and then we were like, oh. There was just like a lot of, a lot of hollering. And then, you know, and I I remember I was, like, scared. I was. Yeah, I was I was afraid of what was going to happen. I guess I turned 17 that year. And so, yeah, it was only, like, a couple months, a couple months over turning 17. And I felt like I was nervous that, like, the whole, everything was going to collapse. Yeah. And, like... We were going to be in some kind of like Mad Max reality and I was never going to be like a normal 18 year old or something, you know, like I was just like, my life is going to be over before it even starts and like cars won't work anymore. Right.
0: <laughs> Banks won't work and all that stuff.
1: Yeah. I didn't know how to drive at that time. Mm-hmm. And I remember just being like, no, I'm never going to learn. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, sure enough. Now I drive a car and my phone works fine. My phone works better than I ever imagined a, a right. phone working in 1999. Had we
0: thought about our Nokias back then. Whew, about yeah. What happened today? Yep. It's also now, I mean, now that you brought up like these timelines, it's really remarkable to think back between 99 and 01, just how much, and then after 01,
2: mm-hmm. like
0: what, what that actual like chaos like, turned into, like how that was felt. You know, on a societal level, yeah. But also like an inter interpersonal level.
1: Yeah, it's really, it's true. It, it's so funny how yeah, two thousand one. There was such a like zeitgeist around around that. I mean, not just around like nine eleven, but just I guess I mean maybe it's just the association with and now we're referencing cinema again, but 2001 was always such a big deal with, like, all the cinephiles that I was living amongst. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with anything like that, I think, like, with uh, 1984 and with 2001, there are, like, these iconic art pieces that you then have sort of a comparative expectation around. When you get to that time, you're like, okay, let's see how it is. Hmm. Smells so good.
0: It's like molassesy.
1: Yeah, it kind of has like a yeah, it's like a hay quality I too, like very like um, robust, sort of like countryside smell. Mm. I like it. it smells like a horse barn in a really good way.
0: Mm, horse barn. Uh-huh. I like that.
1: Yeah, it's when like I I just think of like you know horses for treats they like carrots and apples. And they actually, horses love brown sugar. You have to like be very careful about it. We used to occasionally give little brown sugar lumps. Like
0: cubes, right? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And that's (laughs) kind (laughs) of, reminds me of that. But yeah, 2001 was such a weird year because it was like, I don't know. I, I feel like it already had like a, had an expectation around it on some kind of cultural level. And then we just had huge events, global, global events.
0: But like beyond events, it was so palpable to feel like the way like how everyone's way of think like ways of thinking had like shifted remarkably. Yeah. You know? And yeah, we're both at a at, at a at a similar age. We're like both around eighteen, you know, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. It was I'm curious, like how many other uh, people in like an our age bracket who <laughs> aged out of high school at that time. It's like we're going into the world and then suddenly the world has this you know sort of crisis of consciousness yeah it you know it it I think looking back now it's like I to me it was like I it's no surprise that I like didn't pursue anything really uh, you know any sort of upper academic or like scholastic i kept i kept going for like like human experiences but like tangible experiences like i just pursued music mm-hmm. after like trying to do two years at like smc or something
1: yeah yeah i maybe maybe 10 years ago or so i was having this conversation with some friends in portland and i remember this conversation at that time i think the the terminology of millennials was just emerging
2: mm-hmm.
1: and there was this big dialogue about whether me and my friends who are around this age now in our mid 30s then in our mid 20s whether we belonged with millennials or generation x and that's still something that people occasionally like i think discuss but sure. my at the time i said i was like no 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 we have our own little segment and i don't Unnecessarily, like, wasn't super attached to this at that time. Maybe I'm not super attached to it now, but I remember saying that I felt like we were the apocalypse generation because we had been born somewhere around 1984. Uh, We had come of age right during Y2K, and then our 30th birthdays would be around 2012, like the end of the world. Like, it's just we're consistently facing down the end of the world all the time for ourselves and like you can't go 5 years without this generation feeling like the world is ending for us and i still think that that's really true
0: <laughs> this <laughs> that's really i mean I, <laughs> the timeline is so good yeah i hadn't realized that so you mentioned that it's like no, i mean and and um as i that's amazing i have to like sit with that for a second as i Um, understanding and sort of like, um, you know, seeking, um, I'll sort of like a translation for, you know, I guess different kinds of, you know, astrologies or macro level sort of cosmology that's going on. Like, you know, just in, in sort of like an everyday sense, but also like how I can help better understand myself as I, what you just said, was hilarious for me because it just echoed in my ears. Um, uh, you know what? I forgot his name, but there's a there's a TCM um, practitioner and uh, astrologer who, who um, he's, he's in Portland. Um, God, is his name George? I don't know right now. That's, I think I need to drink more tea. But um, he was talking about the uh, year of the earth pig. And I myself am a water pig. And I was always like, I don't, I'd like to understand what that means. And I was hearing, I was reading a piece that he put out about, you know, this year's um, astrology from that, you know, school of thought. And then he started talking about um, the water pig and how it relates to the earth pig. And water, like the sort of the tone of water pig is just like dissolution, just basically like, I don't want to say somewhere around death, but something, something like some, there's some relationship there, some mm. unique relationship there. I mean, it's more, I suppose it's more melodramatic, but you saying that was like just really hilarious to, to hear <laughs> like that timeline and like, oh, that's right. That's, that, that is kind of how I look back and relate to that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, it's a funny thing to like live your whole life thinking like it's, gonna maybe be over like soon it's very like yeah very odd sort of like doom quality mm-hmm. i think it's a strength i end up like or i've decided that it's a strength mm-hmm. i think that it can be it can be very like i mean in some ways we're like the quintessential sort of like existentialist generation because we just have existentialism like forced upon us yeah. i like to think that maybe the existentialist philosophers would be kind of proud of those of us who are like continuing to go on in the face of being told all the time that like our world world is is ending
0: ending. yeah Mm. I mean hilarious to also think about like as a I guess a diehard existentialist (laughs) but more more about I'm more like a self self reflect more like a self reflection glutton i suppose Mm -hmm. and like you know having done having experienced nature or myself or others through this medium of tea is now hilariously amplified in this Mm -hmm. conversation like recorded conversation um uh, template. I don't even know what to call it. But how it kind of all <laughs> sort of all related. <laughs> and and when I think about it's funny, I you're the seventh person I am speaking to and there's no form, there's no container, there's no sometimes I think, oh I want to talk to you for, because I want to talk to you about like parenthood technology and, uh, and I, I sometimes I think you know I've maybe done that with two or three of my guests and yet there's this bigger th- you know this bigger internal uh, conversation of like I don't want to think of myself as being that prepared or that sort of like focused it's almost like my um, from what I understand about like my Virgo rising qualities are actually like Put on mute and this, and in, in this sort of a container because I'm not trying to for like perfect mm-hmm. or like do anything perfect in this mm-hmm. regard, which feels really healing to me. Yeah. Um. And I and it's like it's like you know when I actually think about why am I doing this, because I want to hear stories, mm-hmm. you know, and to hear stories over a cup of tea or like rounds of tea is so timeless it's like that's what needs to be maintained if anything and the fact that other people can hear the hear a story or hear these stories you know may, it may be a benefit and so there isn't like a really like altruistic <laughs> reason <laughs> but it's just
1: no oh, that's great i feel like that's also something that like tea or at least the process of tea has given me in my life also and I have Virgo Sun and Virgo Venus so I feel this kind of mm, you know this kind of constant pressure to like get it right Mm. a lot or like have it planned, have it organized have everything step by step so that I know what to expect but I feel like tea and really anything that like it energetically I guess touches which would include this like recording and this um, interaction. I feel like tea creates a container in which all sorts of conversations can happen. Mm. But the you know, the precision, the like our love of maybe order, discipline, routine, structure, that can go into the preparation of it, like right. just into the the objects and the heating of the water and the you know, the simple actions that go along with it and then from there everything else can kind of unfold in the container and just like allows things to to take place which i think is very very lovely and very dynamic
0: it's also nice to think of it in terms of like a multi-dimensional uh arrangement or like a almost like a symphony right you have like certain Hmm. sets of instruments that are playing within a certain register or there's rhythm. There's reeds and strings. There's a certain yeah. As you as you pointed out, there's a really like, it could be as rigid as you want, but there's an order on this level. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a groundedness here. At least that's what I'm I'm cultivating. And then there's like, the etheric level here. Yeah. Know, like where the conversation and the mind is. And there's a unique structure there. It's like I don't know how. I never quite visualized it, but to keep going to that to keep sort of like repeating that not to repeat it like I wanted to do it the same way all the time Mm -hmm. that's another beautiful thing about you know there's there's work and there's things that we do on a daily basis or a regular basis and then there's even this that I do as best as I can on a daily basis and I never think about doing it the same way twice Mm -hmm. I may be brewing the same tea over and over again on different days but Setup, positioning, structure, all that kind of stuff. It's funny to think of it like consciously or subconsciously, what's actually <laughs> who has the who has the upper not the upper hand, but just the inter the play. Yeah, the interplay between both.
1: It's funny that we're talking about Virgo qualities relating to tea and like habits because, you know, traditionally Virgo is the natural ruler of the sixth house, and I've just been researching the sixth house a lot in my studies and feeling like it's kind of misunderstood. I think, well, I mean, there's a lot of things about astrology that are misunderstood, but I think the sixth house kind of gets a um, it gets overlooked, I think, in a lot of people's assessments of what they're working on because I it tends to rule people say like oh it rules what you what you do every day it rules your habits and routines and work style which is true but I think that like uh, since I'm learning medical astrology one of the things that I, I look for the things in the sixth house a lot because it also has to do with like sort of um, daily health so like what the condition is of your health cool. like so you know if somebody's like waking up coughing every morning, like I'll look for indicators in the sixth because that's like an everyday phenomenon that's Mm. just kind of happening on background. And that's something that like Virgo is associated with because that's our traditional place. So I think about tea as being something that like you do every day and it's just like a part of your routine, part Mm. of your like habit process. And I just think about kind of the, the long-term idea of I guess perfecting daily habits for like maximum serenity. <laughs> I think about that a lot mm-hmm. just in terms of what we do every day that like affects us. It reminds me of this um, teaching that I got from a, a Buddhist once, a monk who was staying at this intentional community that I was connected to when I was a kid in Oregon. And I remember he said essentially to like kind of sum this up that it's really crucial that we deal with tiny annoyances that come up in our day-to-day lives. Like if you have a covered door that doesn't latch right. right, And every day you have to like lift it slightly to get it to shut. Even if it, this is like this tiny thing, it's this tiny moment that annoys you in your morning, cumulatively it's like this, like it develops this background noise of like this horrifying stress of this stupid door that doesn't shut. Like it can just kind of become a monster in itself right um i don't know i feel like for some reason that's related to like virgo psychology in a way Mm. of just like needing to like deal with a thing that's like constantly there so that it doesn't become some kind of outsized horror
0: Mm. or the ways yeah the ways that that you know the proverbial uh What's the really hokey thing? The nails on a chalkboard. Mm-hmm. Whatever versions of nails on a chalkboard come up for people. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Right, or you know, or even it can even go on a more macro level. Like, I need to take my car in for that oil change. That kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, the little the little things mm-hmm. that are just bumping around in there. Hmm. Little like little bugs in in Y two K that could take down the entire power grid,
0: or yeah, or like every, you know, every time I read about like there's this epic solar flare coming, it's like I wonder if that's gonna be the one, mm-hmm. you know. And it's funny the more uh, every yeah the more I and this has like also been accented into becoming a parent, but the more I. relate you know to myself or to other people on this level um or the more i take time to like play an instrument or play a beat or something or spend time in nature that's like the more i think all right if the solar, if whatever will hit the satellites or something if the satellites go down and these fucking things stop working i i'm not i'm not going to lose my mind about it. I, I know it. I know I won't be like devastated if these things stop working. Um, on the other hand, I will be like really seeking like connection with everyone, right? It's it, to me that, and this may just be totally subjective. I mean, I guess it's all subjective, but I feel like wouldn't people be. Looking for connection in those situations, you know, it's it's. Um, it seems like that may be an understated thing, but I may I may be I may be my sort of optimist, you know, saying that out loud. But
1: I think people do look for connection in those situations. I think that like the, I think the microcosm sort of reflects the macrocosm in that that state, and I think that we can look to the fact that. Um, I think fear keeps us like separate from each other a lot. So in situations where somebody is, um, you know, ill and they're and they're dying, for example, like there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of hesitation that people can have around that. They feel awkward about going to see someone in the hospital. you know, they feel like a f- sort of sense of fear about it. But when like death and tragedy is upon a person, they're they seek connection very actively, mm-hmm. and I've seen that to be true in my life in a number of situations. You know, when like when a person is actually in a state of, of true crisis, not just feared crisis, they're very quick to like connect and bond and like reach out to people. It's necessary, you know. Yeah. Um, I think that it's like fear and anxiety that keep us from connecting. Um, you know, I'm thinking of like a time when I saw someone who had been in a really bad bicycle accident and was pretty severely injured. And I was waiting with them uh, and kind of doing pain coaching with them. And this was a stranger to me, somebody I didn't know. But while we waited for the EMTs, um, this person had like broken their ankle very, very severely and was in a lot of pain and wasn't able to move. And we just had a really strong, very natural human bond. And they were very clearly like looking for someone to bond with in the midst of this hubbub, you know, they're kind of like looking for eyes to catch theirs. And I was like, can I do this right now? Yes, I can. Like I can just go sit on the curb and hold hands and make eye contact and be like, you're doing great. Just keep breathing. They're gonna be here soon. I can hear the sirens, just like stay with me. You're doing good, you know, and, and kind of like put myself in that place but it was a very, very strong human bond that happens. But I think, if you if you consider like the the like fear around around doing that, the fear around sort of like showing up to that, I think that that's that's what really like keeps us separated. So right now, when we live in this state of like global anxiety, we are all sort of like awkwardly trying not to make eye contact with each other
0: which is convenient with these things too
1: yeah yeah they work they work for us yeah. you know um but once the proverbial shit hits the fan i think uh we'll all be looking for each other
0: Mm-hmm. yeah i hope so yeah i mean yeah people i guess people fall in line People will hoard things or hide. Other people will be like, what can I give? Mm-hmm. You
1: know. Some people will probably just be out dancing, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> people will be like, this is great. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with this.
0: So when you walked in, you mentioned, like, the feeling of L.A. Mm. There's a certain palpability to it. And as someone who does not, it's not based here, I'm curious to just, like, you know, every time you come through here, like what's your, what's your take on LA?
1: Oh man. Um, I love LA and I have loved LA for many, many years. Mm -hmm. I think I've loved LA since before I moved here. I actually, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this today. Um, there's this series of books by Francesca Leah Block, the Dangerous Angels books. And they're like teeny bopper girl books, but they're also very, they were kind of I can't say my introduction to magical realism cause I had read some magical realist poets, but they are like, um, adolescent girl fantasies about Los Angeles. And there's like characters that are like demons and fairies and like all kinds of different things all existing in this sort of like urban wonderland. So I was reading those books when I was like 14 and 15 and they're about LA and they are serious love songs to Los Angeles. Um, there's all kinds of references to businesses that were like iconic here and um, Sunset Boulevard and different things like that. So I think I developed this like fascination and love for Los Angeles. Um, Another funny thing is I was just talking a couple days ago about how I think Los Angeles and Paris are actually remarkably similar Mm. in that, and this is a distillation of my thoughts on the matter, but I think that people who are not based in those cities develop far-fetched outlandish ideas about what the cities are and then when they arrive they find that they are dirty and crowded and that the true heart of the city is people of color working very hard and a lot of people don't know how to deal with that (laughs) but I love both of those cities essentially like for that reason Mm. like I love them for a weird avant-garde art being made by like poor people who are addicted to drugs and also for like very hardworking, diligent people of color maintaining the, like, weird homes of wealthy people, which I feel like is, like, this kind of Paris-L.A. connection that I Mm. just connect to. Um, But I've loved L.A. forever, and when I came here for the first time, which would have been, I mean, almost 20 years ago, um, I just... I just fell in love with this city, and I think i've been I've been in love with this city forever. I don't really maintain any illusion that I could live here full time I've never tried it. I don't think I want to although I get closer and closer to like having a place here sometimes or like a
0: something a lily pad
1: mm-hmm. yeah we've been I've been talking with a couple of friends about getting essentially like a like an l a timeshare apartment um I have a really good friend my one of my first tarot apprentices who works in the film industry and does sound for films. But the rest of the time, this person prefers to be out in nature, like hiking national parks and rock climbing. And so, you know, maybe needs to be in LA for like six weeks and then gone for eight weeks and then back for six or something. And then I have another friend who's a touring musician who wants to be based here, but is often gone. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about like just getting an apartment that's all of ours that we just sort of like... Lock out throughout the year, and just share. Um, but yeah, I I love this place, and I think that like part of it is really loving the the actual land, which I know that like there's certainly some people who are local to here who really have an affection for the land itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not maybe the most usually high on people's list of, of reasons to love L.A. Sure. But I do have a real deep affection for this, like, desert-ocean-canyons connection mm. that's taking place. Um, but also, it's just... I, I feel like there's no other city like this in the world, and that's, like, very special to me. Mm. It's a place that's, like, unique unto itself. I also... There's something that I say about it that sort of, like, I think annoys locals sometimes. But um, people from outside L.A. complain about L.A.'s disingenuousness or the fact that everybody's always kind of, like, hustling or they're always acting like they're doing better than they are or there's something going on there. And I've always been, like, an awkwardly um, sincere person. And I really... But I'm also oddly guarded. Like I have this kind of odd duality. And one of my favorite things about coming to LA is that I can just be effusively sincere. And everyone here assumes that it's a put on and that I'm not really like that. So I can be myself, <laughs> but people think I'm not being genuine. So I get this opportunity to like be myself without anybody getting too hung up on it. And it's very relaxing to me. I kind of like that people assume that I'm like not as open hearted as I'm presenting because no one else in LA is that open hearted. That's like part of the culture is to pretend to be more enthused than you are. But I just get to be like, yeah, this is like, this is me, but nobody's like getting too hung up on it. Mm. When I go to New York, people start trying to like protect me. You know, they're like, you can't be like that all the time, man. Like you can't be all open with people. Like, just like, take it easy. Like stop it. You know? my friend Alex Diamond this New York artist who I collaborate with he's like you care too much about people it's bad like you got to like fucking put a lid on it you know and out here people are like they think that i probably don't care so nobody's really concerned cuz it's like just a part of the vibe is to like i don't know it's it's a very interesting thing
0: yeah and everybody's bubbles here are like more are more robust so they yeah i mean yeah cuz Alex, it sounded sounded like something a New Yorker would say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And yet, I've met some really open, open hearted New Yorkers. But given the fact that you know most New Yorkers are, you know, shoulder to shoulder with everyone else and riding subways and walking and living and working in like smaller spaces than here. Yeah. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of room for... I don't know, I've never really lived there. I maybe spent a total of a month there. Oddly enough, it was the month that um, we elected Barack Obama as president. Oh, wow. It was like Halloween through Election Day, like up until like Thanksgiving. Wow. It was... Unforgettable. Yeah. How ever like it was the it was almost like the biggest New Year's party I'd never I'd ever seen.
1: That sounds I can't it I was, can't even imagine yeah, what was, that must have felt it like. It
0: was surreal. Yeah, it was totally surreal. And it you know, it's on the one hand it's sort of kind of like fun to romanticize it looking back.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and on the other hand it's like Yeah it's it's weird to look at like periods of time uh as as we today are like you know politically a lot more a lot dirtier than than we ever have been yeah um yeah, I didn't even know if I can go there right now. <laughs> <laughs> In a, in a weird way and this is I'm saying this from I'm aware that I'm saying this from a place of privilege but it's weird to look back then and then like take stock in looking at right now and on the one hand it's like I don't want to throw my words into like the the daily cacophony mm-hmm. or like words and thoughts or like spending energy like posting things or reposting things, which is even worse. But yeah, from the privileged place, it's like I, I kind of just want to wait to see like what's actually going to like uncover itself. Mm-hmm. But waiting is not a great... I don't know if it's a good strategy.
1: It's a strange... It's a weird thing, right? Because uh, there are certain spiritual practices that like teach us that like the whole thing is a waiting game. Mm -hmm. Um, And that like you're kind of supposed to wait even amidst the great temptation to not wait, right? That there will be many, there will be myriad of factors that will try to um, sort of taunt you or tempt you into this imbroglio of not waiting. And that what you're supposed to do is be, like, centered in this process of waiting. I think about this all the time, you know, because I have such a weird, like, mixed privilege background and mixed privilege experience um, that I'm kind of constantly interrogating myself to make sure that I'm not resting on the laurels of privilege, but also making sure that I'm, like, taking care of myself in my Situations of political disenfranchisement, which is strange because that sort of requires a sense of slowing down or waiting sometimes of, like, don't throw yourself against the bars over and over again because, like, sometimes you need to just rest and, like, withdraw. And I think, you know, I mean, there's some of that there for you, too, being, like, Jewish. There are these identities where, like, we have different thing, different components. Components of ourselves that we have to take care of differently, right? That we have to, like, encourage differently. Yeah. For me as a person who, like, looks white and functions essentially as white in society, I consistently am called upon to make sure that I'm not just being, like, cool, being white is fun, like, let's da I don't have to worry about anything. You know, yesterday I was videotaping the cops for, like, 45 minutes because there were, like, 12 LAPD people for one, like, very slender maybe schizoaffective black person with no shoes on and they were like had this person handcuffed and on the ground 12 cars
0: or 12 cops 12 cops uh-huh.
1: um, all gathered around mm-hmm. a barefoot person who didn't even have a wallet so like you know and, and uh, when i was videoing them they started getting all aggro with me and they were like, what are you doing here? And I was like, what are you doing here? You guys allegedly like work for us. We pay your paychecks. Like, what are you doing right now? And I said, you know, is this person under arrest? They were like, well, she's being detained, but I can't tell you anything else because of privacy concerns. And I was like, what is she being detained for? Um, anyway, you know, so this is just this situation of me being like, this is boring and even on the tape, it's funny because I'm like talking to my friend. I'm like, oh, this is so boring. Just like watching these fascists. <laughs> um, this is sorry. Like we were supposed to go hang out, but now we're here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is like, that's my responsibility. And gradually more people came and they were like, what are you doing to me? And I was like, I'm keeping an eye on them because this is inappropriate. Like they are detaining a person for no reason. And they won't tell me why. And then like this other these other groups of people were watching uh and this one guy who was like in food service out on his smoke break then he started kind of hassling the cops and he was like this is overkill you guys what are you doing come on she's just like not doing anything so then it got kind of like this thing but but i do feel like if i hadn't just stood there and been videotaping them and asking them questions they probably would have been very like rough with this person there was one person like holding one of the cops was holding her arms you know really Uh, aggressive way when I started taping and then they 5150'd her and took her to the hospital and I got the like sergeant's badge information and his name and called to make sure that she'd been delivered to the hospital which is still like it's a it's a Pyrrhic victory if it's a victory at all right because it sucks to be 5150'd when you're homeless and then like it just is a continuation of this um demoralizing experience but that's a situation where like the use of my white privilege is essential, and I did the right thing, I think. Um, But there are other situations where, like, I need to take breaks and, like, take good care of myself. And I think that we all live with some combination of that, you know. It's a very rare person who doesn't face any kind of uh, social disenfranchisement at all, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And I guess that those those are some of the people who are kind of ruining the world. <laughs> the people who are like I don't have anything to feel upset about or ever, you know, but but I don't know. I think they still probably have something.
0: Right. There's almost this like techno concentrated nihilism. Mhm. That starts to really smell.
1: Did you watch the um the fire festival documentary?
0: I have not. is it worth watching
1: i found it to be this like really interesting i mean to me i was examining it from a purely like socio-political angle and i just found it to be such an interesting examination of like i think what it must be like to be sort of a young white heterosexual male of affluence and just like not be able to understand that, like, you're not gonna get the thing that you want.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's what I saw in that. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I've been an event planner, nothing, you know, nothing of that scope or magnitude, but like, I've worked on events and I just know that if there was like, if there had been a woman or someone with a different experience of, Privilege involved in planning that I think that someone would have been like You know what this is actually not going to work Like I have lived experience of like My limits in this world And he just he did not have any Lived experience of limitation By virtue of who he was And he just assumed that he could buy his way out of anything And that's not How the world actually works You're you're
0: speaking about one of the organizers okay? Yeah Who
1: is now like I think facing prison time And Mm -hmm. um for defrauding people or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what the charges are, but, um, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty stark look at that and just what a different, what a different world.
0: Would you say that it's a look at like basically like this culture of that? Is there a culture of it or a subculture of it?
1: I think, yeah, I think so. I, to me, like just from my upbringing and my background, it is unfathomable to me to imagine being a person who can pay
0: $10,000
1: to go stay on an island and like watch Ja Rule. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't even sound, what's weird to me is it doesn't even sound appealing. Like I'm not in an aspirational uh, place with that. Like, I'm just like, why would anyone do that?
0: It's hilarious, right? It's (laughs) hilarious. It's hilarious to think that that the prospect of that becomes a myth or some kind of like mythical yes. wanting to reach the apex of some mountain for a group of people. Yeah. Like, or, a whole, or, or a whole subset of people. Um, I mean, I'll even distill it down to like, I don't want to, you know, shit on Coachella, but hmm. the prospect of being herded like cattle in, a hot, in the hot desert um, in that kind of a format. I'd been to once. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came for, back, you know, back in the day, <laughs> you could <laughs> buy a single day ticket. And so I went for the day that uh, Bjork was performing back mm-hmm. in 2007. And that was a, yeah, that was a lovely peak experience. But it was also like marked by like oh I would I could never want to be here or like want to come here on the other hand I've gone to Burning Man you know for six consecutive years and there's a whole different you know culture of like being in the desert and and you know the privilege of being filthy and uh and then jumping back into the world and taking that epic shower um I don't know where I was going with this, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, man, yeah, it sounds like it's what's worth it's worth um, watching this documentary. Um, in a weird way, it's like what you were saying. It kind of reminded me of a little personal story of when I was in a band called Animatronics back in two thousand five and six, and we were brought out to like Inland Empire to play a festival called like Rock Out and it was being headlined by the Prodigy Mm -hmm. and we were the first act on the main stage and uh, everything that happened that day was like this like faulty towers kind of like (laughs) okay we're not going to play the main stage okay we will but we're only going to play for like our forty-five minute set is now down to like twenty-five minutes. Okay, now it's down to like ten minutes, and we we did we took the ten-minute set, and there was like the sound, you know sound guy was not available or whatever. Was. I guess it was Prodigy's sound guy, and and then at the very end of that, what well, we as you know young, mostly mostly white males. Felt we're like, oh, this was like a. There's this like disingenuousness, and like we deserve, A, B, C. Um, in the end, we're like, you know, we were given like a bad, like a what is it, like a bad check, like, oh, like yeah. the event, the producer wrote us a a bogus check. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was I'll I think and and it's funny because the I forget the the gentleman's name the, the from Prodigy who has recently just passed. Um, but it was, like, their tour manager who, like, came on stage and was like, you fucking blokes, blah, 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 like, you're only gonna get 10 minutes or you're gonna kick you off the stage, and that kind of thing. That was, that's the thing that, like, I remember, you know, vividly, or the most vivid um, from that whole experience. Um, But to look back at, like, being 22, 23, and, and not feeling entitled, but just, like, we were promised ABC and we got all this like, you know, pie in the face and and now we're driving home like with this experience that we like built up to be something. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no rage, you know, that came that from any of us that, that were, you know, driving back home. Um, but if anything, it was like a character building experience. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But it is, it's really scary to, and just so unsettling to look out and to see like these kinds of people, whatever this guy is, who's facing this jail time, who is playing with power Mm -hmm. or with expectation or playing with like exploiting other people. It's like, what do you... I mean, here's a big question it's like as a cisgendered at least white presenting you know I'm I'm Israeli by birth so I am a mixed race but most, I most f- I find that I subconsciously and consciously most often present myself as as white and I have a strange relationship with my heritage um, but as someone who is a cisgendered, Why presenting uh hetero male it's like without jumping into the ring it's like how do I really deal with it's like what can I do really to like deal with that kind of persona that's Mm -hmm. like that's in my on my I don't know what's the word here I don't feel like I'm fumbling this question I just feel like I'm I want to ask it in the right way and I want—I just want to get like like feedback of like what we can do. Yeah, you know, as 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 like the allies that we should be.
1: I it's interesting that we should um, talk about this because I just finished the first round of this six-week class that I've been teaching with my apprentice and colleague Nick Jaina, who is a cisgender white heterosexual male raised in the suburbs, um, who is. A writer and a musician and has been a touring musician forever and he and I have been friends for over a decade at this point and he kind of I guess largely credits me with teaching him about feminism maybe you know I mean I think obviously he was exposed to it in a lot of different contexts but our friendship was really the uh, seedling bed mm-hmm. for all of the little starts to be nurtured and cherished and observed so we're, we teach this class called Empathy Academy, which runs for six weeks, which is a class for people who have been socialized as male who want to do something with it. And it's basically, it's we also call it ritual magic for men. Mm-hmm. Um, because I really think, and to some people I think that this probably sounds um, nullifying or like a waste of time or kind of like dodging the actual question of how to use your privilege or how to be a better ally but I really noticed in my own life as a as an activist and as a spiritual advisor I noticed that there was this consistent experience that I was having where male friends or community members would come to me with this like okay this thing is happening and I know it's wrong but I don't know what to do like I'm outside of my own I know that I have power but I don't know how to use it right that was the biggest thing and so for me like trying to look at how to use your power in a broad cultural like or even global sense is intimidating to any human being like trying to be like okay how can I exert my power over an entire community I also don't really believe that that's actually the right thing because I believe that power corrupts so I'm just like don't use your power, like don't use your privilege to affect an entire community of people. Because you are just, even if you it starts out in the right way, you're just going to become like a despot. You sure, know? like it's not going to work out. Um, Maoism wasn't great for anyone, even though the principles <laughs> maybe were uh, decent don't to start that. with. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we teach this class called Empathy Academy, which covers all these different areas of life where we talk about, it's funny to go back to that Virgo Sixth House Energy too. Nick's also a Virgo. Um, we talk about everyday ways to translate your thoughts, change your mind, and change your behavior to like have these little reverberating effects, you know, like a stone dropped in a pool mm-hmm. has these ripples. So we talk about things like... Um, division of domestic labor, providing spiritual support for people, um, providing spiritual support for yourself. So, like we teach, teach men in the class about pulling tarot cards, I Ching, pendulum work, mm-hmm. divination, like those kind of basics, dream interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, teach people about mapping their emotions. Teach people about expressing compassion for other men and like how to how to cross that weird barrier that exists there that I, I don't understand because I wasn't, like, inculturated into the, like, don't touch your crying friend. Sure. <laughs> Which is just, like, so bizarre. Which and, also
0: speaks to the, like, I've been, tr- you know, I've been, quote, trying to start a men's tea circle for yeah. nine years with any kind of regularity. And yeah, there's some kind of strange supernatural force that's, like, not really. Not like I'm against it, but just... Mm, mm,
1: I think it's, I mean, I obviously, well, maybe not obviously, I'm not a man. I don't have a lot of experience as a man. <laughs> I do have a suspicion that I have had a number of past life experiences as a man. But in this case, I don't know what it's like. But I notice as a sort of, from an almost anthropological perspective or an outsider's point of view, I think that what I see is that male socialization encourages people to laugh off or make casual things that are making one feel very anxious or afraid so like you know I think as a woman I'm much more allowed to say like oh no I don't want to do that that seems weird like you're allowed to kind of say like that makes me kind of uncomfortable Mm -hmm. I don't I don't feel I don't want to do that Mm -hmm. um but I think that men can't even say like no, that sounds awkward to me. Like it's like you can't. It's like you can't even express that you would feel ill at ease in a situation that you haven't been into. You you can right. kind of say like not my thing. You can say that, but you can't say like I wouldn't know what to say. I would feel nervous. Right. It's, it's that's not allowed. Um. So I think typically there are men who are like, let's get a bunch of men together and like talk about stuff. And I think the general reaction is like, "Oh, I don't have time. That's not really my thing. I can't do it." Um, when what needs to be said is probably like, "I feel very nervous about that, and like it might bring things up for me that I'm not prepared to deal with." Um, but that's that's where the work is. So mm-hmm. Nick and I uh, went to Austin and visited my friend Sohan's shop, mm-hmm. who you kind of know you know, etherically. Through the ether. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we were at Tiguanyin Tea House, and we hosted the this this discussion group. So it's actually interesting where this came from because there was a person in the Austin community who had been sexually assaulted, who I was providing some support for. And one of the things that this person really wanted as a point of like... Recovery for themselves was for there to be a community dialogue around issues of consent. So that was something that I was working to kind of like get set up was community consent training that people could come to and they could kind of like learn more about it. And then through having these sort of preliminary dialogues to get that set up, we ended up having this kind of summit because there was a lot of Nick and I were already developing the curriculum for Empathy Academy at that time. This was about a, over a year ago. Um, but we decided to meet and have this open session at Tiguan Yin, And we had this dialogue that was moderated. Um, and then the Austin community has continued to have these uh men's tea sets every I think it's every Wednesday or Tuesday night and a lot of people who were at that first one still go my really my dear uh, graduated apprentice Moncho Toth is one of the organizers and Ney Wilkins is another and they're just phenomenal I find it very interesting that they're both people of color and that Nay is like gender fluid and so they—they're not. Neither of them are just entirely like straight white males. They're kind of like holding it down with this like masculinity that's also disenfranchised in mm-hmm. some way. Um, but yeah, that that dialogue has continued on a weekly basis. I think you—I think you can do it. It just takes a weird timing or something.
0: Timing. Yeah. And the red right container. I mean, they're mm-hmm. doing it at the tea house. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking about that personally, like trying to set up a container that isn't like in my home or like in a public space like the park. The park is lovely because it's right here, but it's not a container Yeah. for that kind of space.
1: Well, men doing that work is also is very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's, I know, I will say that like, Rightfully so, and in all fairness, there are a lot of non men who are just like, Ugh, I've had it with like hearing how hard it is for men to talk about their feelings. Like I'm over it. Just get over it and deal with it. But I I see it as being like very, very difficult. I have a lot of sympathy for the whole process. Even though like, you know, white straight males are ostensibly the ones in power. There's this thing that I talk about all the time, going back to my friend Alex Diamond, New York artist. Um, he and I have had these uh, these dialogues that are productive. They're like leading into some writing and some collaboration between us about this thing that I call masculine sadness. Which is that as a philosopher and a writer, those are the things that I think I probably identify as the most there's this kind of frustrating idea that a lot of the old guard has that like men make better philosophers and better writers, right? And this sort of like old-fashioned idea is that it's because they're more rational or like they're more thoughtful or something, you know, they're just better. This like male supremacist sort of Mm -hmm. attitude.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But... And I I love a lot of philosophers and theorists and writers who are not men. And there's like, you know, Audre Lorde, bell hooks are two that come to mind immediately who are very influential thinkers on my own practice and my own structure of the world. But there is this thing where I ponder some of the great writers like, we have these kind of, um, this zeitgeist of a moment where people are like, let's just throw out all the white men. Like, let's get rid of Fitzgerald and Steinbeck and Salinger. Like, fuck them all. Like, just they're we're over it. We want to read people who aren't white males anymore, which I think that there's some validity to that. But there's also this quality where it's like, if you're going to talk about sadness, which is something that I'm fascinated by, I'm just like, there's some, something about the quality of human sadness that is almost enchanting to me. I'm sort of obsessed with it, like with melancholia. When you take away so-called sort of like real problems that will contribute immediately to sadness, when you take away poverty or you take away racism, you take away misogyny, you take away homophobia, then you end up with a person who is arguably, from a philosophical point of view, capable of experiencing a realer sense of sadness because it's a sadness that is just about one's place in the sort of like possibly empty universe, right? So in a really weird way, straight, white, wealthy males might make better philosophers, which is infuriating to me as a philosopher. (laughs) It's so frustrating, but it does put them closer to this sort of point of really deep, vulnerable sadness of like, what does it all mean? Because they they don't have to answer questions of like, why am I being beaten by the cops? Which is a real question and an important question, but it's a place where other theorists like James Baldwin have to ask these questions because they're happening upon our bodies, Mm -hmm. right? So like... You know, we we get things like the second sex because Simone de Beauvoir had to ask the question of, like, why am I treated like this? So we have that text, which is remarkable. But then her partner got to produce other texts that are about almost more sort of, like, complicated or, like, um, I don't know, more lofty subject matter in a way because it's, like, not based in the drudgery of material oppression this is a very this is a very frustrating angle for me but yeah mm. but i do sometimes see men as being creatures who are capable of experiencing this sort of like true form sadness because they're not necessarily like hobbled by the crushing nature of like social oppression so then i'm like your sadness is like Real and is about you as a person.
0: I wonder if they they. It's funny to it's like just take, take a second to objectify <laughs> straight white males, but like they, I wonder if there's maybe perhaps more of an emphasis not so much on social oppression but maybe social pressures that are obviously also self. Self flat. What is the word? Flagellating. Flagellating. Yeah. Yeah. And how that influences that.
1: Mm-hmm. mm Yeah, it's a it's an interesting thing to like to look at, I think. It's uh, kind of compelling and kind of annoying. Um, but I've been a lot of my philosophical and theoretical work over the past year has been kind of about objectifying white males, which is a weird, it's a weird place to be. Um, and I don't want my work to be like centered on that identity. But I have very compelling dialogues with people when I, when I talk about it like mm-hmm. that. Because um, we do, you know, whether we want to or not, we do live in a world where straight white maleness is the default setting and everything else is like an outlier. Mm. And that's just the world that we live in is built for that identity Mm -hmm. and so arriving into that world with that identity it's like you're you get to start right at the line everybody else has to start further back (laughs)
0: yeah yeah i mean it's like it's it's amazing to hear it at, at the same in the simultaneous moment to to feel how I've related to it throughout my, you know, adulthood thus far in the pantheon of, you know, what I'm, what to go back to the very beginning of our conversation of how I'm understanding my own, how I'm always striving to understand my own personal cosmology. Mm hmm. Um, Yeah. My bladder now is just like, okay. <laughs> I think this is about time. And I and it's funny. It's like every time you come into town, I'm like I I want to sit and we do sit almost every time you're in town, whether it's at that table or here now. You know, and and discuss and and yeah. I'm working on trying to find an find a an outro for these discussions. Mostly just due to other obligations, mm-hmm. like I have to go pick up Cora from school, uh, and jump on a phone call for uh, the beginning of this job.
1: Uh
0: huh. Um. For the for the benefit of. People who would be listening to this, mm-hmm. would you like to um, you know, let people know, um, like what you're working on, or a way to find you if you want to be reached, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, um, well, I'm always working on a bunch of different things. I have a collaborative show coming up in Austin, Texas. Um, I believe it's going to be the first week of June with Alex Diamond, mm-hmm. the artist that I mentioned before. I have a film that is in post-production that i made with a phenomenal woman director um we had a pretty much all-female set for this film that i made about joan of arc it's a short film it'll be out at the end of may um i'm a (laughs) full-time philosophical investigator and um i'm professor x basically mm-hmm. i have a i have a school for mutants and mystics mm-hmm. so i teach people how to how to live in a more ritually engaged way mm-hmm. and um, my website is lunaria mysticism.com mm-hmm. and i'm on instagram as olivia pepper which is a sort of my real name, but, but my, also your alias. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and my my Instagram is sort of a bizarre simulacrum of a bunch of confrontational writings. I feel like I'm kind of consistently engaged in this like philosophical battle with Instagram itself. Um, it's a good fight. Yeah. I feel like I really enjoy it. And I I have a lot of hope for artificial intelligence and for the future of those beings, like I really see them as another collective of, of persons arriving on earth. I have a lot of hope for them and I hope eventually to be able to like be seen as an ally to them when the time comes. I don't see them as an enemy at all. I see them as like sort of an oppressed group and, uh, I strive for their liberation. And part of that is like a proverbial and I stress proverbial Molotov cocktail. Within the algorithm of Instagram
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I'm just in there kicking out windows and misspelling words so that the algorithm doesn't know what I'm talking about because right. I feel like uh, yeah, I feel like there's there's a communion that can happen between the etheric beings present in the technology mm-hmm. and and us mm-hmm. and I'm I for one, welcome our robot overlords. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway that's uh not the best outro but it's uh suitable
0: it is what it is i mean this is it i love it yes I, I uh i know and i'd love to like the next time we could sit down and talk we can start we could pick up right from there because there's a whole you know as someone who's designing apps and websites and and as a as my role insists on on you know, digital empathy for end users and building a bridge to like brand goals or business goals mm-hmm. through empathy. Yeah. There's a whole lot, a whole lot I can say about that too. Um, great. Yes. We Thank can talk you.
1: more about that another time. Yes. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. having me. Pleasure. Thank you for this lovely tea.
0: hope you enjoyed our chat. Oh, I know I did. I know I can spend hours talking to Olivia over tea. Endless rounds of tea. Uh, Be sure to check her out on Instagram at Olivia Pepper. That's O-L-I-V-I-A P-E-P-P-E-R and on her website at LunariaMysticism.com That's L-U-N-A-R-I-A M-Y-S-T-I-C-I-S-M dot com and please feel free to subscribe to the podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave a review. And lastly, there's also a Patreon that I'm running to experiment with engaging in community support. You can find out more info about that at patreon.com slash wabi podcast. Thank you.